The opinions expressed in these materials represent the personal views of the participants and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Salient. This information is neither an offer to sell nor a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. Any offering or solicitation will be made only to eligible investors and pursuant to any applicable private placement memorandum and other governing documents, all of which must be read in their entirety. Reference to any third party, specific product, process, or service by trade name, trademark, or otherwise does not constitute or imply endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by salient. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to episode 15. Our 15. Last, Can our, you believe it? Great job on this, Ben. This no, has been same a fun to you, project. Michael. Same to you, Michael. Uh, I'm Michael Correo, Director of Investor Relations and Communications at Salient, and I'm here with Dr. Ben Hunt, Chief Investment Strategist and author of Epsilon Theory at Salient Partners. Coming to you on a rainy day in New York City. Uh, I think this is going to be our last podcast for the year, uh, and it's, it's been a terrific podcast. Uh, uh, project that we've endeavored on. We've gotten terrific feedback from all of our listeners. Uh, and today in particular is a, a mailbag edition. We, we put out uh, a request to, to our listeners and our Twitter followers to send us questions. And uh, Ben, I'll, I'll let you take it from there. Thanks, Michael. It has been a great experience and looking forward to, uh, to, to many more in 2017. Um, you're right. I wanted to do a mailbag issue. So I'm, I'm flying solo today. Uh, but Really, it's it's not so low. It's 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 courtesy of all the cards and letters and and, and tweets I get. So uh, keep those cards and letters coming, uh, as they they used to say in the the, the comic book uh, uh, letter to the editor page, Excelsior. So there there are some people who get that. Uh, there were five topics that I thought were particularly interesting. Uh, one of them I submitted to myself, so you know I find it interesting. Uh, anonymously anonymously yeah, that's yeah. right that's good, right good. that's right yeah good uh so four of these i think will be pretty quick uh and there, there's one the whole notion of what's happening with rates we touched on it a bit on the broad the the, the podcast uh last time uh i've got some more thoughts on it and certainly that was where we had the most questions uh both on uh emails as as well as from uh the the, the twitter verse so, so let me go through these kind of four uh, topics in, in, in pretty short order. But I, I, anyway, they're fun for me, so, so, so I hope they'll be fun for listeners. The first, and this is the one that I submitted to myself, uh, it was about the different reaction between the English version of a tweet that I put out and then the French version of the same tweet. Now, Michael's looking at me querulously. So about... I guess it was about three weeks or so ago, there was this phenomenal chart, uh, courtesy of uh, oh, yeah. uh, Torsten Slock, uh, who's the, the chief economist over at Deutsche Bank, who I think does terrific work. I, we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things, but I think he does terrific work. And this is a chart that was showing um, U.S. Uh, net worth. So, you know, we get that data from the Fed. And uh, looking at the dividing this up by the uh, by income percentiles and sub-percentiles. In other words, for the people in the 90th, the, the bottom 90% of income makers in the United States, what percentage of net worth 
in the United States do they own? Right? How how wealthy, that's net worth, how wealthy are the bottom 90% of uh, income receivers versus versus how wealthy, what's the net worth of the 0.1% of income makers in the United States. It's a fascinating chart because it goes back till, I think, 19 teens, something like that. I think that's right, yeah. yeah. And, and, and what's fascinating to me is that in uh, 1927 or 28, the net worth owned by the wealthiest one-tenth of one percent was equal to and soon surpassed the net worth of the bottom 90 percent of income recipients of the population of the United States. It's the only time in history where it's where it's crossed that way. So that the, the one-tenth of one percent is wealthier than the bottom 90 percent. That changed uh, after, as you can imagine, uh, after the, the, the 30s and the, the, the Great Depression uh, and the impact that that had for, for net worth for everyone, changed still further in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. Early 80s, it peaked, meaning that the net worth relative to the uh, of the 90% relative to the one-tenth of 1% 1 peaked in the early 80s. And since then, it's been coming back closer and closer until finally this year, today, the top one-tenth of 1% 1 is as wealthy as the bottom 90%. It's incredible. It is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And, and, and my view is this is the most important chart in the world. Uh, it's not just in this country. It's in every country. This is what's driving the populist movement in politics today, just as it did in the 1930s. Uh, it's been this enormous redistribution of wealth from the bottom to the tippy top, right? It's not the top 1%, it's the top one-tenth of 1% uh, that's really seen, and the bottom 90% that's seen their relative fortunes shift so dramatically. That middle, or, or it's, it's upper, 9.9%, they've stayed constant throughout almost this entire time. It's really been the top one-tenth of 1% versus the, 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 the bottom 90%. And so I tweeted this out in English saying this is the most important chart of the world. This is where, you know, I think what's driving the, 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 the populist movements. And the reason I say I wanted to compare it to the, the, the French version of this was that it, it was a very popular tweet here when I sent it out. So I think it had like 180 retweets and, you know, 300 likes. And it was, you know, it's, it's good for a tweet over here if you keep up with this sort of stuff. But one of my readers translated this into French. Mm -hmm. I remember that now. And the French version of this had like 500 retweets and like a thousand likes. It was far more popular to think about this, and it's a purely U.S. stat. It was far more popular to, to look at this in France, in French, than it was in the U.S., and the English-speaking world. It's not like they're having a populist movement or anything. Right, 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 right. Yeah, but what, here's what it here's what it, it tells me, and it's this this, this uh, it's this line I once heard in political science a long time ago, and I've kind of taken it as my own, right? But in the U.S., we take issues of class and we put them on the political dimension of race. That's what we do. In Europe, they take issues of race and put it on the political dimension of class. And I thought this was just a phenomenal example of that in action. 
that, uh, that, that from a European perspective, it's, it's, it's hard to describe. You're almost trained to think of these political issues in terms of class differences, which this is, right? It's the one-tenth of one percent versus the bottom 90 percent. Whereas here in the United States, the, the issues that get the most play, let's call it, and we certainly saw this around the, the, the most recent U.S. election, are those that are e more easily translated onto the political dimension of race. And so this is just part of the political culture of the United States and Europe, and it's, and it's uh, I think, an observation that is uh, useful when we're thinking about, well, what does drive narratives, and, and how is the narrative different in both the U.S. and in, and, and in Europe? Because I, I can see differences in the way the, the, the narratives develop. That goes into my second point, right, which is that what am I seeing in the European narrative today uh, after the anti-status quo vote in, in Italy, and how does that compare to the, the anti-status quo vote that we saw earlier in November with the, the, the Trump election? And I'll tell you the big difference. The big difference is there's no positive narrative that's emerging in Italy. No positive narrative that's emerging in Italy. And it's why I've been reticent and don't plan to buy the dip, the the non-existent dip, right, that, that uh, existed after the, the, the Italian vote. So we were talking last week, or the last podcast, you know, you had a day and a half of a dip after Brexit, about an hour and a half dip after Trump, and no dip after the, the, the Italian anti-status quo vote. My view, however, is that not all anti-status quo votes are the same, are born equal. Uh, and that the anti-status quo vote in Italy is a, I'll call it a pure negative, in, in, in terms of uh, implications for financial assets and risk, in terms of its implications for the Eurozone. There's no growth narrative that comes out of the Italian anti-status quo vote. There's no reform narrative that comes out of that. In fact, it was a vote against reform uh, because we want to kick the current rascals out and what you're seeing in Italy since that vote has been the, the, the usual, right? The, the, the powers that be try to circle the wagons and preserve the status quo by forming a caretaker government. And people say, oh, what we need is a technocratic government, which means an unelected government. You know, they need that like they need a hole in the head. And, but they've done that in the past. I don't think they're gonna, that's going to happen this time. And I think you're going to see it reflected in earlier elections than people think. For Italy, I know the, all the hoops they've got to jump through on electoral laws and the like. These are excuses, not reasons. And my my view is that you've started a, a boulder rolling down a hill in Italy that won't stop until you get new elections and a um, a real replacement of the current uh, team elite, as I like to call them, regime, with negative consequences there there are no positive consequences for the euro system that come out of that so that, that that's what i think is next in italy and you'll see it in terms of uh, um, uh recapitalizing their banks which uh obviously took a an enormous step backwards uh, in terms of trying to get private investors in those banks uh after the after the anti-status quo vote all right so that's that's two right so that's the u.s versus europe that's what's next in italy number three um, OPEC, right? So, so, so OPEC has obviously been in the news a lot uh, for coming together and uh, agreeing, at least for now, on production cuts. 
and then most recently coming to some sort of agreement with non-OPEC states, uh, primarily Russia being the, the, the big one in that crew, to uh, further limit production or to limit production from the non-OPEC members. And I'm often asked, you know, what's the game theory behind OPEC and the like? And, and, and it's interesting, again, at least I think it's interesting. So the, 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 the game theory of OPEC for all these years has been, the, as you expect, the, the game theory of a cartel. And game theory in a cartel, it's a, it's a contained version of the prisoner's dilemma game. And what, what, what do I mean by that? It, what I mean is that the equilibrium outcome of a cartel is for the cartel members to cheat. That is the equilibrium outcome of any prisoner's dilemma game, and OPEC is no exception to that. So how can a uh, dominant member, and, and you can only really solve the, the, the prisoner's dilemma in a couple of different ways. You can do what's called repeated plays. I mean, if you play it a lot of times, you can see cooperation actually emerge here. Um, you can, um, well, that's, that's one. And two is, is what OPEC has done in the past, which is to have one member who carries a really big stick. Basically think of it as the, the way that the mafia would try to cure the prisoner's dilemma, to try to get their members not to rat on each other. How do they do that? They threaten, uh, in mafia, violence. Uh, in, in OPEC, the Saudi Arabia threatens economic ruin, meaning that in the past, OPEC has always said, oh, you're going to cheat? You're Nigeria, let's say, and oh, you're going to start you know, pumping more oil, selling more oil than your allotment allows? All right, you want to see cheating? We'll show you cheating. We are going to turn open the spigots, and we're... You, right, right, yeah, right. So uh, that's great, Nigeria. You, you know, you cheated a little bit. We'll, we'll we'll show you what it really looks like. Run you out of business. We're gonna run you out of business, right? And and it's what uh, the if your cost of production and you know I look I don't want to get into all that, but if it's like four dollars or you know for Saudi Arabia, and you've got all these reserves, you you as they've claimed and they've demonstrated in the past, right? You can you can credibly threaten this sort of cheating. Now, that works so long as you don't have an existential threat to the economics of any one of these countries. Uh, once you start getting those sort of political threats, the, this, this sort of game theory by carrying a bigger stick, uh, the mafia approach to solving the prisoner's dilemma game, it doesn't work as well. Uh, so, so, so really what you're, you're kind of looking at here is a, a, a bit of a transformation of the game where all of these countries, including Saudi Arabia, are now looking into the abyss and seeing that with oil where it is, with the U.S. being the swing producer that it is, you know, there are days of really calling the shots, either Saudi Arabia within OPEC or OPEC itself calling the shots on uh, global supply and demand, it, it's limited and they're trying to play a different game. So they're playing a different game internally uh, and they're playing a different game externally. I don't think it's still a prisoner's dilemma, which is why I think that the, the, the odds of this sticking either internally within OPEC or externally with countries like Russia is quite limited. The, the um, emergency action uh, or emergency uh, exigency can certainly get you to cooperate for a short period of time. And that's what I think you've seen both internally and externally. If you see oil over 50 bucks a barrel for any persistent period of time, then the cheating starts again, and it's just very hard to maintain that prisoner's dilemma approach. So that's what I see in the OPEC. But there, there, there is an interesting shift there. 
there is an interesting shift there because all these countries, uh, Saudi Arabia included, are having a, a come to Jesus moment because their their economies, they need the money, they need the money, and um, uh, it's that is that domestic political process that always trumps international economic logic. In this case, the domestic political exigencies trumped the international political logic of cheating, right, rather than the international political logic of, of cooperation. All right, that was three. So let's go on to number four. We're hearing the the the, the lovely sounds of, of New York City in the background. Sensitive microphone. Yeah, that's right. Apologies, that's right. everyone. No, love it, love it. So number, number four. So the Epsilon Theory note uh, last week was looking at different examples of game theory from poker, the you know game of poker, the game of chess, but also the game of nations in terms of naval blockades. As I mentioned in the note, I, I love maritime law because it actually encapsulates game theory equilibria. That, the, the rules, the, the seemingly arcane rules that imbue maritime law, they're basically, those are equilibria outcomes that would come out of game theory. And if you didn't have those, you'd basically have to fight a war to kind of figure out, oh yeah, that's the balancing point, that whatever that arcane rule is. And, and you see it so much, particularly in terms of blockades, where you've got all these rules about what neutrals can do or not do in terms of uh, judging the effectiveness of a blockade and the like. And, and, I, and I thought it held together pretty well uh, for the purposes of that note. But I had a, I had a great note uh, or great email uh, from, a, from a reader, uh, Brendan, uh, and he was saying, you know, in real life, you know, real naval issues, uh, you know, it'd be, be interesting to talk about, well, the, how the submarine has totally changed uh, the, what is possible or these equilibrium outcomes that you would get out of maritime law. And he's so right. He's so right. So the, one of the really interesting things when you look at history uh, in terms of both World War I and World War II and then today is that the, blo the blockades that were set up in World War I go a, a little bit of so so in world war one uh the british with their big navy set up a blockade uh, a naval blockade of germany included food included food uh and and so neutrals like the united states if they judged the blockade to be effective and britain's got a big navy and we were predisposed to judging it effective said okay well you know we're not going to ship food to germany which is that's, that's a it's a little dicey, right, to, to say, okay, my, it's one thing if your blockade includes munitions and, and the likes. Another say, well, we can't send food to this country. Germany responded. They said, look, well, you know, if you're not going to send food to us, we might as, we, we've got to try to fight this blockade the best we can, which is put our own blockade around, around the UK. And, of course, we don't have surface ships to do it, so we're going to use submarines. So submarine warfare, and this is when the Lusitania gets sunk and the like, and really promotes the U.S. getting into World War One. You see the same thing in World War Two with the U-boats. Um, the submarine changes this whole dynamic in practice of how can you judge when an effective blockade is or not. And the fact of the matter is, when you've got subs going around, when you introduce submarines into it, you can't. It changes the whole gameplay here. So that, although the law says you have to abide by it if you see it being effective, there's one way to judge if it's effective or not. You can't see the warships being stationed outside of the port the way you can with surface ships. 
So the development of the submarine has really kind of upended in practice the whole notion of, of blockades and, and maritime law around that. What's really interesting today, I think, around submarines is it's similarly upending our whole notion of naval strategy. So the idea of building these big aircraft carriers, these big floating cities, you know, that basically have these carrier task forces around them. So the, the, the principle was you're basically building out these four or five fleets that have at their center one or two aircraft carrier and the, the other ships around them. Well, that doesn't work out too well, right? If you can get a sub that pops up two miles away from you and, you know, fires a nuke over there and just, you know, blows up the whole shooting match. So it's really changing, and it's, it's another way in which technology changes these cozy equilibria that build up over a period of time, over thousands of years in the case of maritime law, uh, you know, obliterated in the 20th century, and now the basic naval strategy is changing so so dramatically. But it's the same thing in markets, right? It's the same thing in markets where the cozy equilibria we've developed, particularly around market structure, around the whole notion of who provides liquidity, uh, the role of exchanges and the like, that's totally been obliterated now with... Um, um, I'm not going to get into the high-frequency trading issue, but I'm talking about the electronic trading, electronic exchanges, and what's possible there with the technology. So that was issue number four. Uh, in issue number five, this is the one that I got the most questions about, and it's uh, it's saying more about what you think about rates. You know, what is it? What is going on with the dollar? What's what's going to happen here? And I want to connect all this together because one of the things I've written a lot about in epsilon theory is that dollar up is bad, dollar down or flat is good for risk assets. Why is that? It's because the dollar is a reflection, it is a manifestation of competing monetary policies. So that when nations are competing, when you're getting this giant game of chicken between the United States and China, that is reflected in currencies. When you're getting a game of chicken between Germany and Italy, where does that get reflected? It gets reflected in the euro. It gets reflected in the currency. That's where competing monetary policy represents itself in currencies. And so that's why I've been saying, look to what the currencies do, because to date, this monetary policy competition has been absolutely dominant. But something changed with the Trump election. We absolutely see a narrative developing that it's maybe not going to be monetary policy that calls the shots going forward in the global economy, certainly the U.S. economy, over the next several years. That it's going to be fiscal policy. It's going to be what does the Republican Congress and Republican White House, what are they able to do, what are they able, what are they able to accomplish? You see it in a lot of different ways. You see it in the narrative and financial media leading up to this Fed decision. Fed's going to hike. More than 100% market odds for the Fed to hike. What's interesting to me, though, is the lack of articles about this. Right? Think back to how much coverage a Fed decision would have received at any point in time, any Fed meeting over the last two years, and think about how little you've read about the Fed meeting next week for the first hike since December, which would be the second hike in like 10 years. And there's almost no coverage about it. 
this is what I look at when I'm trying to figure out, you know, what's happening to the narrative. How is it changing? And we are absolutely seeing a shift in the narrative from central banks and monetary policy dominating everything in terms of market outcomes to now increasingly talking about fiscal policy dominating market outcomes. To the degree that persists, if monetary policy is not believed by the market to be the one and all driver of market outcomes, then the dollar doesn't matter as much anymore. Right? Because remember, the, the whole notion of why are we focusing on the dollar? Because that's the manifestation of competing monetary policies. If the market's going to say that monetary policy doesn't matter as much anymore, that's fiscal policy we should be looking at, then the dollar and correlations with the dollar don't matter as much anymore. And that gets to my point about rates. Because this whole notion about rates and this whole notion about dollar, they're one and the same. The other place where we see a manifestation of competitive monetary policies is in interest rates, right? And particularly on the short end, because that's what these, these central banks control directly, but also on the longer end, because that's what QE was supposed to address. So to the degree that we are seeing rates in the United States go up, for reasons other than monetary policy, that suggests a very different dynamic or potential for markets and its impact. So if the correlations we've particularly seen over the last two years, which have really been driven by the lower rates, low global growth, central banks trying to stop it and yet taking actions which actually, I believe, accentuate the deflationary pressures, the monetary policy of the central banks that have led to the currency destabilization, I don't think that's too strong a word for it, destabilization, those correlations have been driving markets, risk assets, commodities, everything else. If the narrative is changing, and right now, I, look, how long does this go on? I'll tell you. If the narrative shifts back, I'll let you know. But right now, we're absolutely seeing a shift in the narrative away from monetary policy and central banks determining market outcomes to increasingly at least the hope of, fiscal policy determining market outcomes. Definitely a shift. We've seen it since the U.S. election. We'll wait and see if that continues. But for now, that's what's dominating correlations and the like. And that's what, uh, let's say, is problematic for a lot of strategies and a lot of investors. Look, we train ourselves really well in the sense that once we find a correlation and a pattern, we stick with it. What I'm trying to tell you is that the narrative is changing, and so these correlations are going to change. So that's what I'm looking at really carefully. Uh, that's what we'll try to uh, continue monitoring and talking about in Epsilon Theory. And I'm sure we'll have another podcast pretty soon. Talk about it in 2017, Michael. All right. Happy holidays, everyone, and we'll see you in 2017. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben.